My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Hello and welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people who are facing many different struggles talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I'll be speaking with Robin Beckett. The relationship between the work that we do and our health has never been more starkly visible than it is right now. After all, millions of us are not able to work as the COVID-19 pandemic rages, precisely to protect our health and that of everyone else. For many of those who are still working, the question of precautions to protect health weighs heavily. And where governments continue to allow patently non-essential activities that bring together large numbers of people, looking at you, pipeline and resource extraction projects, there's been vocal outrage at the threat to public health this represents. Even outside of the pandemic context, however, there's a tight relationship between the work that we do and our health. For one thing, for most of us, employment determines our income, and income is a major determinant of health. If you have less money, you're less able to afford good food, safe and adequate housing, medical expenses beyond what provincial health insurance covers, and all of the other necessities of life, and that shows up in health outcomes. As well, the specific kind of work that you do might contribute to risk of infection, chemical exposure, physical injury, harms to mental health, and other acute and chronic risks. And there's an extensive body of research showing that precarious employment, that is, working jobs that are some mix of low-wage, temporary, unstable, and unpleasant, itself leads to greater experience of things like depression, chronic pain, high blood pressure, arthritis, and much more, as well as increasing that ultimate indicator, mortality. Robin Beckett is a public health professional, so not a care provider herself, but someone whose work focuses on understanding illness and health in social ways. She is active in the Decent Work and Health Network, a group of healthcare workers, public health workers, and community members advocating for decent work in Ontario using a health lens. The network was founded in 2014, initially as a joint project of a group called Health Providers Against Poverty and of the Fight for $15 in Fairness. The latter is the name of the campaign in Ontario that's been demanding that the provincial minimum wage be raised to $15 an hour and that substantial improvements be made to minimum employment standards. The network gives healthcare providers a way to collectively advocate based on what they see in their practices in terms of how low wages and poor working conditions harm people's health, and they've been articulating clear health-based rationales for many of the Fight for 15's demands. In 2017, the groups involved in this fight won a major victory when the provincial liberal government of the day passed legislation granting not all, but many of their demands. Unfortunately, after their election in 2018, Doug Ford and the Ontario Conservatives rolled back many of those improvements, so the network shifted its focus to advocacy based on the harms to health that Ford's changes were causing. More recently, they've started doing some primary research, using interviews with precarious workers and healthcare providers to document more rigorously the ways in which the 2017 reforms and their rollback in 2018 had an impact on people's health, with an eye to using this research in future advocacy. And now, of course, we're facing the COVID-19 pandemic. In this moment of crisis, being able to stay home when you're sick is more important than ever. But many, many workers in Ontario are not able to do that without losing pay that they desperately need to stay housed and fed, or perhaps even losing their job. 
The network is advocating that every worker in the province be given permanent access to seven paid sick days per year, and an additional 14 paid sick days during times of public health emergency like the pandemic. As well, many of the demands currently being made by other groups like the Fight for $15 in Fairness and the Migrant Rights Network have important health implications as well, and members of the network are active in supporting those demands. I speak with Beckett about the relationship between work and health, about the Decent Work and Health Network, and about their demands during the COVID-19 pandemic. My name is Robin. I am a public health professional and researcher, and I'm also an organizer with the Decent Work and Health Network. And we are a group of healthcare workers, public health workers, and community members advocating for decent work in Ontario using a health lens. I became involved in public health initially through my interest in social justice and organizing work. And I did have a bit of a background in research before getting into public health and really trying to figure out a profession and a way to focus my interest in social justice as well as in research. And public health seemed to be a way to do that for me. Public health, I think people often conceptualize it as more so about containing infectious diseases and in terms of sanitation, as well as vaccinations, which it for sure is all those things, especially <laughs> right now considering COVID-19. But it's also more than that, too. It's about really understanding the social determinants of health and what makes some people healthy and maybe makes other people sick or not as healthy. So those social determinants is really where the social justice and advocacy and organizing comes into play. It's to really get at and understand the underlying root causes of health inequities. It's not necessarily super clear the connection between work or employment and health. And it for sure wasn't for me before I really got involved in this organizing. Something that's really helped me to understand this on a personal level and something that I encourage everyone to do is to think about your own employment, whether that's your current employment or past employment that you've had, and thinking about the various ways that that impacted your own personal health. I think we're often not encouraged to think this way and we're encouraged to see them as separate. We go into work, we do our job, and that's one thing. And then our health is something entirely different. Through this work, it's helped me to understand that these things are deeply connected. In fact, they're so connected that a few years ago, the Canadian Medical Association held consultations across Canada to determine what has been making Canadians sick. And they found at the very top of this list is income, and very close behind that is employment and working conditions. And this happens through a few mechanisms. First, of course, so work determines our income, which determines a whole host of things, including what housing we can afford, maybe if we cannot afford housing, the type of food we can buy, medications, other resources that we can afford, our level of leisure activities as well. Also, employment dictates the benefits that we have and, again, access to medication through that. As well, depending on the job, we can have various physical exposures to things like chemicals and infectious diseases, as well as potentially experiencing injuries, of course. 
as well. Something that's, of course, not to be looked over, but which often is, is the mental health impacts of our work. So whether that's stress, anxiety, as well as insomnia. And this isn't just anecdotally, but we see it time and time again in the medical literature. So we see that, for example, mortality studies that have looked at precarious workers over time have found that mortality has been higher among temporary workers compared to permanent workers. We also see precarious workers experiencing higher levels of anxiety, as I was saying, insomnia, depression, family tension, chronic pain, high blood pressure, addictions, ulcers, arthritis. There's a whole host of outcomes that come along with precarious type employment. And often we'll hear the argument that these types of jobs are held by teenagers with other forms of support. So it shouldn't be impacting their health because, you know, they live with family still. They have other points of income through their family connections. But the data shows that in Ontario, this just simply is not true. So 30% of all Ontario workers are low-wage workers. So that's under $15 an hour. And also we see that 66% of minimum wage earners are older than 20, so they're actually not teenagers. I've been involved with the Decent Work and Health Network for about two and a half years, but its origins are well before that, around 2014. Its origins are really through the Workers' Action Centre in Toronto and the Fight for 15 and Fairness campaign. That is the campaign that's been advocating for a while for a higher minimum wage, specifically $15 minimum wage, as well as more fair workplace legislation. So that's where the fairness piece comes in. So around this time, health workers joined in on this campaign to create the Decent Work and Health Network and to really push the demands of the Fight for 15 and Fairness campaign through a health lens. And this was out of a recognition of the amount of political and public sway and authority that healthcare providers, particularly physicians, have. And yeah, I'm personally not a healthcare provider, so I feel like I can say this. I'm not tooting my own horn, but it's just the recognition that we've all had of how impactful the healthcare worker voice can be. Then throughout the next year or so, the Decent Work and Health Network, alongside the 15 and Fairness campaign, was really using like health research, health evidence to understand how in Ontario, precarious work conditions are increasing and also recognizing that these types of working conditions are taking an enormous toll on the health of individuals, on families, on communities, and on public health as well. So we were really behind the core demands of the Fight for 15 and Fairness campaign that was a $15 minimum wage, as well as seven paid sick days for everyone in Ontario, as well as the elimination of sick notes. Throughout the next few years, we were really advocating to getting these changes into legislation. And then Bill 148 came out, which was the Fair Workplaces, Better Jobs Act that contained a lot of these demands. It was a huge win, except two paid sick days instead of seven paid sick days. But still, at least there was that that came into effect. In 2017, 
And then Doug Ford was elected in 2018, and he took away a lot of those gains that we had won through that bill. So then a lot of our advocacy and organizing work was around showing the inadequacy and the harm that Doug Ford was doing through his changes to labor legislation. Connect a little more explicitly some of the specific demands that the network supported in its earlier years to their health implications. The minimum wage one is maybe the most clear-cut one. So the members of the network, they're largely physicians and other healthcare workers who are seeing patients who simply are not able to make ends meet. They're working more than 40 hours a week. They're working multiple jobs, but the income is just simply not adequate to provide sustainable, decent housing healthy food for themselves and for any dependents. In terms of the paid sick days, what the physicians and the nurses were seeing were patients coming in with what had maybe started as a small infection or some other small disease, and they just simply could not afford to take time off work. And then what started as a small illness or infection or disease has grown into something that required them to not only take more time off, but to also then have to go to the emergency room. So that piece of not needing to ask low-wage workers to choose between losing a day's pay by staying home from work or being able to put food on the table for their families. So that's really the choice that we're forcing low-wage workers and workers without paid sick days to make if we don't have legislated paid sick days. We'll often hear the response that, oh, well, it's up to the individual businesses who, you know, we believe are good people and the business owners, you know, we believe that they'll give their employees paid sick days. But that's just simply not true. That's not what the literature shows. It actually shows that fewer than half of Canadians are covered by employer sick leave. So we can't leave it up to business owners. It needs to be legislated. And we're really advocating for at least seven paid sick days. And this is important because your common cold can, on average, last between seven and 14 days. The flu lasts between seven and 14 days. A chest cold can last seven to 21 days. Sinus infection, seven to 14 days, and so on. So at minimum, for one bout of an illness per year, we need seven paid sick days. And that doesn't even take into account if someone has dependents and their kid needs to stay home sick from school. And then eliminating sick notes is also another demand of the Decent Work and Health Network. Under the legislation passed by the Kathleen Wynne government back in 2017, employers could not ask for a sick note, which was a huge win. But of course, when Doug Ford came back in, he reinstated sick notes. And the physicians and other healthcare workers are saying that sick notes are absolutely just a waste of their patient's time and a waste of their own time. They're a waste of healthcare resources, and they also clog up emergency rooms when all they're doing is writing on a piece of paper for one patient when they could be tending to their other patients. Also, when their patients are in there for any kind of infectious disease, they're also risking spreading it to other individuals in that waiting room as well. And more recently, but before COVID-19 upended everything, what's the network been doing? 
Within about the last year, we've actually shifted focus to something a little bit different from our regular advocacy and organizing. We've actually been focusing more on research and specifically documenting the impacts of the change in labor laws that we've seen over the last few years. And we've been doing this primarily through collecting workers' stories. As we've talked about through the last few years, workers in Ontario have really experienced quite a few relatively rapid changes in labor policy. So, for example, we saw the minimum wage increase to $14 an hour. We all gained two paid sick days and then we had them taken away and then employers could no longer ask for sick notes and then they could. So some relatively quick changes in a short amount of time. We're using these changes to ask workers, you know, like, what has this been like for you? What are your experiences during this minimum wage increase, during the change in paid sick leave, during the change in sick note policies? And so really trying to collect the workers' stories through interviews with workers and really doing this in order to equip ourselves with knowledge so that we can fight back and really hold the government accountable and say, listen, these changes in labor laws that you've made have had real impacts on the people and workers in Ontario. And here is exactly how that's happened. Because we do have a good amount of information and data on changing labor legislation and how it impacts health and how it impacts workers. But a lot of it is from outside of Canada, let alone outside of Ontario. So this is really going to be like clear cut examples of exactly how the changes that their government has made has impacted the workers and to really hold them accountable. And we've also been conducting surveys with healthcare workers to really get a sense of their opinions on sick notes and the healthcare burden of sick notes to also really have strong evidence behind our demands on sick notes as well. How has the pandemic changed your focus? The key reform that we are focusing on through COVID is paid sick days. And our key demand around paid sick days is that we're calling the government to implement at least seven permanent paid sick days. So that's been our original demand all along. But then an additional 14 paid sick days during public health emergencies such as COVID. It hasn't ever been as clear as it is now that workers need a minimum of seven paid sick days so that they can afford to stay home when they are sick. And we're asking people to stay home unless they absolutely have to go out, unless they're considered an essential worker. But during public health crises like COVID-19, we cannot expect people to stay home and isolate if they're feeling any level of illness, if they're not getting paid, especially for low-wage workers. And low-wage workers and not having paid sick days often goes hand in hand. Even in other pandemics, so for example, the H1N1 pandemic back around 2009, there was research in the U.S. In the U.S., they also do not have a national paid sick day policy. This research found that 8 million people went into work well infected and by doing so spread the illness to an additional 7 million people. 
So then COVID-19, an incredibly infectious disease, like what are the consequences of not having paid sick days? How many more people are going to unnecessarily get sick because we do not have paid sick days? We often, too, hear an argument about the cost of paid sick days and how much it would cost employers or the government or whoever is paying for paid sick days, how much this is going to cost. But again, the research shows that the cost of not providing paid sick days is way more. So a few years ago, the CDC estimated that providing paid sick leave to workers who lack it might help decrease the number of work days lost due to just the flu and similar illnesses by nearly 4 to 11 million days per year, which worked out to around $2 billion each year. And again, this is before COVID. So what are the cost consequences of not having paid sick days during this global pandemic? And we're seeing that so many workers on the front lines, they're the ones who do not have these paid sick days. So they're the cleaners, the grocery store workers, and many care workers. As my fellow organizer, Dina, out of the Workers' Action Center, said very eloquently in an interview the other day on this, we're calling these workers superheroes, the cleaners, the grocery store workers, care workers, along with healthcare workers. We're calling them all superheroes. You know, we're banging pots and pans outside for them. And it's great that these often low-wage workers, precarious workers, these workers that are often considered low skill, it's great that they're getting this recognition that they deserve. But we, the general public, the companies that employ them and the government needs to actually be putting our money where our mouth is. And these workers absolutely deserve and need decent minimum wage as well as paid sick days. And again, that's seven paid sick days permanently and an additional 14 days in times of pandemic or emergencies. I'm sure it's too soon to say much for certain, but what's your sense at least of how this disease and the economic meltdown that's just beginning are going to impact the populations of precarious workers, low-wage workers, and so on that have been the focus of so much of the network's activities? It's going to be huge. The research that's going to come out of this is going to show not only the devastating impacts of the virus itself, but also the social implications and the economic implications of the virus on the entire public. And of course, what we see time and time again is that when there's any level of public health emergency or crisis or any disaster it's the most vulnerable who face the brunt of it, which is often the precarious workers and precarious workers and people who are going to be facing the brunt of COVID-19 and its associated impacts are going to be racialized people. They're going to be poorer people. They're going to be migrants and refugees. This isn't going to be something that's felt equally across the population. We know who's going to be facing the brunt of this. It's been shown time and time again in the research and throughout history. The data on COVID around this is already coming out in the U.S. Recent data coming out has been showing who are the people who are dying so far from COVID. And it's disproportionately impacting racialized people, especially Black people. 
And, you know, when we make these sort of statements, it's absolutely critical that we emphasize that this, of course, is not some sort of personal shortcoming among these groups, but is, of course, the result of historic, interpersonal, systemic and strategic racism that has led to racialized communities suffering higher levels of poverty, pollution, precarious work and limited access to health care and to poorer health care as well. And poorer people are more likely to be taking public transit, working jobs that they can't work from home, and working, of course, to these more precarious type jobs that are low wage and do not offer paid sick days. I also think it's important to recognize that here in Canada and in the state, the care work that we're also realizing is an incredibly essential service and is super important always. And it's becoming especially clear now during COVID that this care work is racialized and it's feminized. So it's meaning that those employed in the care work field, be that long-term care facilities, personal support workers, these are largely racialized women and migrant women. And these are going to be the people who are facing the brunt of COVID and its impacts. And again, these are often precarious jobs. So they're not getting adequate pay. They're not getting paid sick days. So they're the ones facing both this virus as well as these social and economic consequences of this disease. And how have the new circumstances changed how the network is doing its thing? We have been focusing more on education and spreading the word about our demands, both in terms of COVID and generally, and doing this largely through things like webinars and through social media and through writing op-eds and other types of news articles. A big part of the network has been also interfacing with the public and with politicians, whether that be through giving deputations or meeting with MPPs. So that's, of course, had to stop as well as any kind of street outreach or obtaining petition signatures and just generally talking to the public. That's been a method we've used, too, to get our message out there as well. So that's had to stop, too. But that doesn't mean that we've slowed down. Just a lot of it's been pushed online to webinars and social media. What are the big things coming up for the network in the next few months? I would say just really focusing on our demands around paid sick days in light of COVID and also really trying to advocate as well behind the other advocacy and workers groups that are pushing strengthening of other income supports. We fully support the demands being made through the Workers Action Center and the Fight for 15 and Fairness campaign and the Migrant Rights Network. So really also amplifying those demands for policies around the CERB and the EI that leaves no worker behind. And we are also hoping through this to keep mobilizing and building our network and getting more and more folks, be that healthcare workers or other public health workers or any community members to join our movement and sign on to our demands. You can do that at www.decentworkandhealth.org. And we're also on Facebook and Twitter. You have been listening to my interview with Robin Beckett, a public health professional who is active in the Decent Work and Health Network. To learn more about their work and to support their demands, go to decentworkandhealth.org.
To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show. On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, iTunes, SoundCloud, and other platforms. I'm Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, published by Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week.